If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today my guest is... Akshay Sabiki. He is the CEO and co-founder of Cognitive Scale. He's got more than 18 years of entrepreneurial leadership, product development, and management experience with growth stage venture-backed companies and high-growth software divisions within Fortune 50 companies. He was a global leader for Smarter Care at IBM. He successfully led and managed the acquisition of Karam Software to establish IBM's leadership at the intersection of social programs and healthcare. He has a BS and MS in electrical and computer engineering from UT uh, at Austin and an MBA from the Acton School of Entrepreneurship. Welcome to the show, actually. Thank you, Byron. Great to be here. Why is artificial intelligence working so well now? I mean, like, my gosh, what has changed in the last five or 10 years? You know, um, big difference is, you know, everyone knows artificial intelligence has been around for decades. Uh, but the big difference this time, as I like to say, is there's a there's a whole supporting cast of uh, characters that's uh, uh, that's making AI really come into uh, to its own, uh, and it all starts firstly with you know the fact that it's delivering real value to clients. So let's let's dig into that. Um, you know, firstly, you know, data is a fuel for AI, and we all know with you know the the amount of information we're surrounded with. You know, we certainly hear about big data all over the place, and and you know it's the it's the amount and the volume of the information but it's also systems that are able to interpret that information so you know the type of information i'm talking about is not just your classic you know databases nice neatly packaged structured information it is highly unstructured and messy information that includes you know audio video you know certainly different formats of text um, images right and our ability to really bring that data uh, and and reason over that data is, is a huge difference. Um, you know, we talk about a second big uh, uh, supporting uh, cast or supporting character here is uh, is uh, this, the prominence of uh, social. And I say social because this is the amount of data that's available through uh, social media where we can in real time see, you know, consumers and how they behave or whether it is mobile. And the fact that you have devices now in the hands of every consumer. And so you have touch points where insights can be pushed out. Um, you know, those are the different, I guess, supporting costs that are now there, which didn't exist before. And that's one of the biggest changes with, uh, you know, with, uh, with uh, the prominence and the uh, true sort of value that people are seeing with AI. And so give us some examples. I mean, you're at the forefront of this with cognitive scale. What are some of the things that you see that are working that wouldn't have worked five or 10 years ago? Well, so let's take some examples, right? So, um, you know, we, uh, we use an analogy, which is, uh, we all sort of have used Waze as an application to get from point A to point B, right? Um, you know, when you look at Waze, it's a great consumer tool that tells you, you know, exactly what's ahead of you, cop, you know, traffic, uh, debris on the road and so on, and it guides you through your journey, right? But if you look at applying a Waze-like analogy to the enterprise where you have a patient, and I'll use a patient as an example because that's how we started the company. You know, you're largely unmanaged. All you do is, you know, you show up at your appointments, you get uh, prescriptions, you're told about your health condition, but then once you leave that appointment, you're pretty much on your own, right? But think about everything that's happening around you. Think about, you know, um, social determinants, for example, the city you live in, uh, whether you live in the suburbs or you live in downtown, with the weather patterns, the air quality, 
such as pollen counts, for example, or allergens that affect you, or whether it is, um, you know, your specific zip code within the city that tells us about the food choices that exist around you, right? There's a lot of determinants that go well beyond your uh, pure sort of structured information that comes from an electronic medical record. If you bring all of those pieces of data together, an AI system is able to look at that information in the biggest difference here being in the context of the consumer, in this case, the patient, and surface unique insights to them, but it doesn't stop right there. What an AI system does is it takes it a step or two further by saying, I'm going to push insights based on what I've learned from data that surrounds you, and hopefully it makes sense to you. And I will give you the mechanisms to provide you know, a thumbs up, thumbs down, or specific feedback that I can then incorporate back into the system to learn from it. So that's a real life example of an AI system that uh, you know, we've stood up for uh, many of our clients using various kinds of structured and unstructured information that we brought together. And you mentioned a word in passing there. What's your view or what's Cognitive Scale's view on explainable AI? Uh, very strong, actually. Our belief is, and you know, Byron, that starts with some of the industries that we work, uh, work in. The concept of explainability, you know, people have this view that AI is a black box. It's, uh, you know, the machine comes up with an, with an insight or it come comes up with a prediction or a recommendation. Uh, but it truly can't tell me why it came up with that, right? Uh, we've developed our technology from the standpoint of right from the beginning, uh, you have to have the evidence and explainability built into this because when I get, go back to the example that I just gave you, you are in highly regulated industries like healthcare or financial services and relying on AI to give you insights, whether it is you know insights going to your financial clients or your patients or your compliance department, these have to be you know auditable. Uh, they have to be tracked. You have to be able to have a, you know, a stream of, uh, you know, a connection between why this uh, insight was delivered in the first place. Uh, in fact, I would go as far as to say uh, many of the industries we work in regulate even the insights that are being delivered from AI to the consumer by putting a human in the loop. But, you know, that's still important today because you haven't yet trusted the machine. So that's why explainability is step one. In fact, one of the most important ingredients, in my opinion, of making AI successful. Um, and, and adoptable uh, in the enterprise. Well, you, you added that in the enterprise part because I guess there are spheres where, you know, where should I have dinner tonight? I yeah. don't necessarily need to be able to dissect that system. So if, if there's a group of like low importance things like that that don't have to be explainable and then there's a group of things that, you know, are very important and do, isn't it easier to develop the former? You don't have to put it. And so won't the former, isn't explainability fundamentally going to hold back to even of some degree uh, how quickly we can advance in AI? And maybe that's fine, but doesn't it, doesn't it slow us down a little bit? You know, not, not really. I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I gave you a sort of a compliance example about heavily regulated industries. Let's talk about the consumer that you mentioned, right? Where you, where you don't have to go as far as make it explainable. But think about that also for a second, right? You know, we all know, even as consumers, we get these annoying, uh, you know, ads that follow us everywhere. If I happen to have shopped for a vacuum cleaner, for example, right? And, you know, you're annoyed because there's something that's tracking you and you're like, man, this stuff is creepy. Now, look, if I was given control, even as a consumer, and I'm talking about a pure sort of a B2C type of an environment, not even a, you know, a B2B or where you deal with businesses, purely a consumer to consumer, a consumer-oriented use case, you still have to build trust for the consumer. 
And so we look at explainability. So if I'm putting an insight in front of someone around, you know, a recommendation for a restaurant or an event or, you know, um, a diet or an activity that you should do, at the end of the day, I have so many things being told to me. But if I bring it in my context, I tell you, here's why I think it's really important for you. I may turn explainability off because I start trusting the system. But initially, to get going, what explainability does is builds trust. And then what that drives is adoption. What adoption drives is now you have more feedback signals and the system gets smarter, right? So I think these are intertwined. In fact, we've made explainability almost a core component of how we deliver AI. And frankly, this goes beyond just the business scenarios that I mentioned to you. So you would you go so far as to say uh, that, like in Europe, it should be legislated to be uh, an essential element of the system? You mean in terms of uh, data? Mm-hmm. And GDPR and everything else. We are exactly May first, which is today. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, look, I, you know, let's let's think about this. Right. So there is absolutely a level of regulation that's required. There's no doubt because you know you have systems and the ability today to go absolutely nuts with the amount of data that exists. And frankly, you know, the you, you can you can go deep into you know uh, into uh, social networks and extract information, which is downright creepy. Right. So we, you know, when, when you talk about regulation and especially what, what's happening now in Europe, and I think we're going to start seeing some of that here with some of the recent events that have happened, uh, I think they're, they're not a bad thing because um, we may be crossing a line and frankly getting the appropriate consent from the, from the end consumer. Uh, and frankly, I, I think it's uh, a lot easier to get consent when you're delivering value to people. Uh, you know, I think it's going to start becoming more important. So we'll see how this plays out. You know, frankly, I'm 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 waiting and seeing how we, we're going to be impacted because we do business in Europe as well, and we'll see how that that's going to affect our business. Well, last question on this one. I mean, if I went to Google and said when I type the search, um, you know, best resort in Aspen, why do I come up number five and my competitor comes up number four? I would think at this point, Google would have to say, we don't have any idea. I mean, like, there's so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things at play. And you want to know out of 50 billion pages why you come up number five and they come up number four. There's just no way to know that. Yeah. So is there, should we hold the AI to a higher account than we hold people? Because people don't really know why they make the choices they do either. And so if you ask a loan officer, why did you deny me? The loan officer can tell you broadly you know, whatever. Um, but, but what are your thoughts? Are there, are there in the end systems that become so complex that perfect understanding of why they behave the way they do doesn't exist anymore? Yeah. You know, I think you're right. I mean, look, uh, the examples you're giving, especially with, um, you know, businesses and being able to sort of audit and tell people why and so on, those are important at one level. But I think over time though, this will become so pervasive that I don't think it'll be the reasons or the evidence or why this came up with the insight. I think over time, what will happen is it's going to become so widespread in almost everything we do. We're already starting to see that, that this will almost become the norm, right? You're getting insights and evidence and, you know, they're, they're, they're affecting what you do, where you go, how you live. And those will just become part of the fabric of how we, how we consume insights, right? So I, if, I'm, if I'm capturing your, your, um, your line of thought and your question, I do expect that, you know, today it's probably more important because if people have this level of distrust or I shouldn't say distrust as much as, man, this is AI. I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. But I think over time, though, I think it's going to become very accepted. I don't think people are going to talk. In fact, I say this, right? 
I don't think in a few years people are going to be talking about AI as much as we talk about it today because it's just—it's almost like it's—it's it's expected in in everything we interact. Right. It's like how we used to have a web department at uh, at, at companies, uh, you know, back in 1998 or whatever. Exactly. So, tell me, Cognitive Scale's mission and why did you start? Why were you a co-founder of the company? What is the mission of the company? Yeah. So, look, we um, you know we've been in enterprise software, and I say we because the founding team uh, consists of a few folks that I've worked with for many years, and um, we share similar beliefs. We've been in enterprise software for uh, you know twenty plus years. Um, but we worked together for almost that entire duration um, in different, uh, you know, I call them different waves of computing, right? Our initial focus was, you know, business process management and how you can drive better automation of processes, right? That's how we were, we all got together. Um, we had the fortune through that process of, you know, getting acquired by IBM, spent a lot of time at IBM. I truly learned the meaning of scale uh, at a company like IBM. Uh, and this was also the time I, I and you know some of the other founding team members had the opportunity to get involved with IBM Watson, and um, it truly amazed with you know how you could take a system and bring uh, a whole lot of data to the system, and you know as you said before, I think you know go through you know volumes and volumes and volumes of information and see a system you know defeat one of the best players in Jeopardy, right? And the thought that crossed our mind at that point was that's phenomenal that you can bring all of this data. But it makes an assumption that you know what question to ask, like in a Jeopardy system, right? And the way we work today in society, uh, the way businesses work, uh, you don't know what question to ask. And, you know, our, the founding sort of principle for this company uh, as we left was to say, can we flip the arrow and can we build a really smart system of insights that instead of you asking the question, can it tap you on your shoulder and say, you know what, this is what you need to know in the context that you are. I go back to the base analogy that I mentioned to you earlier, right? So that was the foundation of the company. And, um, you know, and we also had a second big sort of realization that general purpose AI is not there yet. The fact that I can ingest, you know, tons of data in, you know, from different volumes and across, you know, different domains and so on is good. But if I'm going to build context, I really have to understand a domain. So I have to go deep within a domain and really uh, uh, you know, understand concepts in a domain, whether it's financial services or healthcare, and even specifically uh, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, deeper within subdomains within domain, right? So you've got to make it very specific. And sort of the third piece was this notion of uh, AI replacing humans. Our view has always been that where AI is going to have the biggest impact is around augmenting humans. So, so Byron, long story short, but it's those three fundamental principles around switching the, flipping the arrow, you know, going domain specific and then ensuring that this is about augmentation more than replacement were the founding principles and the mission for this company. And we've been you know, quite, quite successful in driving that mission into the different industries that we are uh, focused in. Give me a use case, if you can, about, uh, you said financial services and healthcare. Give me um, some real world results you've seen in the healthcare space. Yeah, so you know, healthcare is uh, is uh, is uh, is one that's very near and dear to my heart, to most of us, right? We think of this; it's it's got a good, uh, you know, societal aspect to it. And um, you know, when we started, it was around patient engagement. Um, and you know, we worked with some of the leading healthcare organizations, uh, some of the largest cancer institutes, uh, you know, the second largest, uh, uh, you know, third largest uh, healthcare systems in the country, uh, basically trying to show them how you can use AI to really flip the arrow and almost become the concierge for the patient. And um, in doing that, 
how can you engage patients better? Because, you know, we were trying to prove essentially that better engagement of patients over time will lead, will, will lead to better health outcomes. And so, you know, when you look at whether it's cancer patients or diabetics, you know, we've been able to, and I'll give you a few examples, right? Uh, we, we ran the study with one of the largest um, uh, healthcare institutes where type 1 diabetics were brought into our uh, program and we were collecting information from um, medical devices such as their Fitbits as well as their wireless glucometers, right? These are fairly hefty devices that patients have to carry with them. And they monitor them, they track them, they get information from them, but it doesn't bring any context to them. It, you know, th those are just numbers saying your BGL level is high and, uh, or it'll tell you that, you know, you didn't get enough sleep last night, right? But if I was to bring this in the context of the patient, and in this case, it was, you know, um, it was actually uh, kids who were, our, our study group was kids who were transitioning from uh, adolescence to adulthood and literally going off to college, right? And now facing the pressures of college, the stress that comes with, you know, studying in college and all the other great points that they have to maintain. Uh, the fact that they're now in a new environment, uh, it completely changed the game. And so we said, can we bring AI to these patients where they were given our AI application running on their mobile device, which was in real time collecting information from uh, those Fit that Fitbit device. It was collecting information from where they lived on campus, dorm or not. Uh, whether they, uh, you know, what their exam schedules looked like. And it said, look, I'm going to now surface insights for you. When I start seeing that your sleep levels are low or your BGL levels low, I can start now running correlations and telling you uh, how this is likely to impact you because I also understand the diabetes type 1 protocol. And so when I start seeing these different pieces, I'm going to start surfacing not just your BGLs high, but your BGLs high, and we think this is because you're also in a high-stress environment. Consider doing these activities, and you happen to live in this location. Let me tell you what's happening around you. That's the type of study that we ran, or rather, real implementation that we ran with a study group of about 35 to 50, I believe, um, participants. Highly successful. In fact, rave reviews that we got back in terms of just the engagement of the population. And now we're looking at rolling this out much widely, much, much wider to a much wider, uh, you know, audience uh, or patient group. So that's an, that's an example uh, in the healthcare space. So you mentioned that you've wanted to focus on augmenting humans. And, and when you say AI, are you actually saying augmented intelligence here? Or do you, are, you, are you using that as shorthand for artificial or is there no distinction between? Yeah, we actually make it. So we, we say broadly speaking, we are the augmented intelligence software company. Right. And Certainly, our techniques that we use are AI techniques, but it's almost like the bringing the you know taking humans and saying you know what would you what do you need to know? I, so in this case here, you know the example that I just gave you, there are care managers that manage these patients, and so what do I have to bring to a care manager or to the patient directly? Assuming that you know uh, a hospital system is you know um, uh, I'd say sort of uh, you know at the leading edge, but they're, trying, they're willing to push some of this information out to patients. But at the end of the day, you're augmenting the intelligence of the individual, whether it's a care manager who cares for you, whether it's a financial advisor that's looking after you, or whether you're the client or the end consumer, the patient that's consuming the information. So we use it interchangeably, but the, the way I describe this is for us, AI is augmented intelligence. And certainly the science of AI is the techniques that we use behind the scenes to make it happen. So I'm... I'm way up there in believing that these technologies create far more economic opportunity than they destroy. And more importantly, they, they empower people. They, they make everybody effectively smarter, that anybody with an AI tool is effectively more productive and therefore 
can earn higher wages and, and all, of, all of the rest. And when you draw that distinction, we're all about augmenting humans and not replacing them. It seems you're directly responding to a fear that people have that these technologies are going to somehow obsolete humans. Um, and I don't think that's going to happen. But I think there are certain things that you would say, well, once we build an AI that can monitor security cameras and look for people, we may need less people to monitor those monitors. So tell me yeah. why people, broadly speaking, shouldn't or should, but I, I think you would say shouldn't be worried that these technologies are somehow going to upend the social apple cart of employment. Yeah, great, great question, Byron. So, uh, look, I can say, tell you this through examples, and I'll tell you, um, because my fundamental belief is right now, look, AI can be used for many different things. And, and I think there is the real fear that this is going to replace my job and so on. And I do believe that at some level, you know, at the very low level, task level where it's, you know, very repetitive tasks, we're already starting to see some of that happen. But here's what's happening. And I think this is the bigger point around augmented intelligence and AI. The fact that, you know, you can be far more productive, um, you know, in what you do if you're surrounded with this Jarvis suit, almost like as we, as we call it, your Iron Man, you, Iron Man because of the Jarvis suit that you put on, and it takes you to a completely different level that productivity can let you as a business drive much more in terms of you know whether you're selling more whether you're reaching out to more customers whether you're being more productive and efficient as an organization so uh, let me give you a few examples right um one one sort of example different from what i've described before is employees within an organization that let's say you know are they deal with uh, you know uh, an assembly line or they're you know on the warehouse uh, shop floor and they have to rely on systems today when problems happen. And you know, the systems are where I, I, I ask for information because I'm stuck. You know, I can't figure out why this is not progressing. I'm not able to get an invoice or this is not reconciling, right? If I can tell you at that moment that you know, you're going to be stuck for a while because you're going to put that information into a trouble ticket. Someone's going to reach out to you in two hours. And you're, you're basically, you know, your you're two, two hours of uh, you know, productive time now is, is essentially waiting. If I told you that AI systems can now understand, you know, your context, the systems you use, look through a lot of the documentation and almost come back and say, look, I think these are the things that are happening around you. This is what you should do or connect you to a super user. You know, we've been able to demonstrate about almost a 30% improvement in the productivity of employees that are in that scenario just by augmenting them and bringing that information to them at their fingertips, right? That changes the game because you have very large consumer packaged good, goods companies that are saying, if I could bring this to my shop floor to my employees, I'm looking to grow it. Today, I'm constrained by the fact that I, you know, I have labor that can only do so much. But if I could actually show that these people are more productive, I can go and do a lot more business, right? So people are thinking of it wrong. They should be thinking about what can I do now that I'm a lot more efficient in terms of business capture, value capture, then how do I become more efficient on the back end by cutting people? I mean, if that, that makes sense to you, uh, Byron, in terms of the example. Absolutely. Uh, no, absolutely. We, we saw that when the ATM was introduced, it lowered the cost of opening bank branches. Banks opened more, and there are now more tellers than there were when the ATM was introduced. It's like anytime technology drops the price of something to zero, like the cost of translating, people consume a lot more and the world actually now needs more translators 
than it did a few years ago because more people are taking their business internationally. So I totally get it. Um, why do you think, though, there's such... There are people, informed people, that, though, peddle that narrative. I mean, there are people in the industry, in Silicon Valley, that say, you know, we're about to obsolete a huge percentage of the jobs and we're going to need a universal basic income and, and we are going, I mean, why do you think informed people have a whole different view of how that's going to unfold? What do you think, broadly speaking, they get wrong? Yeah, you know, I, frankly, I'll tell you, I think that's the wrong approach, if I may say so, because, look, again, I'll go back to different people have different opinions on, on what AI can do. We take an opinion, and our opinion has been to do exactly around, you know, to talk about the augmentation, the benefits, the expansion, the growth, the types of new markets you can now touch because you have AI behind the scenes. And that's that message has resonated for us as a business far better. In fact, it also allows us to work within the organization to get the support and the, you know, the, the buy-in from the executives and the individual workers who have the knowledge in their head. So, you know, when I, when I hear someone say, you know, we're going to go in and change all of this, you know, there's so much information that still resides in the, in the heads of the actual workers. You know, your expert, whether it's your expert actuary or your expert, you know, financial advisor, Walking in and saying I'm going to replace them and you know have a machine do what they do is um, is uh, immature in my opinion because what it it almost discounts the the knowledge that's sitting in the head. In, instead, if you said, "Can I help augment you?" and over time, as we learn more, you can go on to do bigger, better things or serve, service new uh, new new aspects of the market or new elements of the market, right? That you didn't before. To me, is a far better message. So you know, look. The different tasks, the different types of companies out there that talk about where AI can be applied, and I and I do believe at a certain level, as I said, at the low level task, uh, you know, if you look at the highly menial repetitive task, you can absolutely say AI can replace humans, right? And I think that's the right thing to do. But when I'm talking about business systems and driving, you know, a level of business function, you have to rely on individuals because that's where the knowledge resides. There's another so. You've mentioned general intelligence at the very beginning, and you said, you know, we're, we don't have that. Um, we may not actually even be on a path to create it. It may be something that only shares the words artificial intelligence with narrow AI. It may be a completely different technology. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. So, but there's a different kind of fear that's being peddled around that system, and that's by very notable people who say, you know, it's going to kill us all. Elon Musk said, I believe there's only a 5 to 10% chance we're going to survive it as a species uh, and all of the rest. So, Mike, I have a few questions about that. One, do you think that kind of fear is justified? And if not, do you think it serves to slow down development of AI because it interjects so much fear and uncertainty into, into people who, who are worried about it? Yeah. That's another good question because, you know, certainly we hear about that a lot. And um, I'll say this, look, there's a, there's a spectrum of, you know, um, fear and belief in what AI can do. And I think, you know, some people certainly are at the, at the end of the spectrum that says this is crazy. It's going to take over and have, like, you know, drastic sort of impact to how we live and, you know, our uh, interaction with machines and all of the doomsday sort of scenarios and so on. Um, I'm not there yet. Okay, I'll tell you honestly, I'm not there. I, I'm very much on the 
the the value that this can drive. But I do believe in one one of the things that I hear on the from the you know the the naysayers and the folks that are on the other end, which is it has to be controlled. It has you know this notion of having uh, responsible AI, having this notion of uh, you know auditability, um, you know as I said earlier, explainability, evidence, but more importantly. You know the ethics around AI are going to start getting more and more important because look, this technology is very rapidly getting to the point where there's a lot of things that it can do, and uh, if left uncontrolled, then you certainly can. And I'm not suggesting this is anywhere in the near future, but you can foresee, you know, 10 or 15 years down the road, you know, fairly drastic sort of results from AI. That said, if we now begin sort of as responsible companies that are in the AI space start establishing a foundation for responsible AI and AI ethics, then it's a, it's a good thing. And this can't just be the big players. This has to be, you know, it has to be a combination of folks like, like Cognitive Scale and multiple other AI companies working with the Googles and the Microsofts and, and the IBMs of the world and so on. And to that end, you know, uh, Cognitive Scale actually has uh, sponsored and we are the founding member for something called AI Global. And the mission for AI Global is very much around building a level of uh, responsibility and trust around AI. So my, my sort of, uh, uh, you know, just a summary of what I just said is, I'm not with the, you know, the sort of the doomsday series today. I believe there is a scenario where this could play out, but I do believe we have to start now thinking about the responsibility and the ethics around AI. Right. That assumes, assuming that's true, that assumes that, Everybody wants AI to behave ethically, and so yes. any 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 number of bad actors who don't would. I mean, you're suggesting a set of agreed upon principles, like we have in medicine and other things that we don't. That everybody agrees we're not going to violate these things, but right. but some people can. So one very real concern um, is that something like 14 or 15 militaries around the world are figuring out how to embed artificial intelligence into weapons and frankly, to make autonomous kill decisions. And, and this is seen as kind of an upgrade from a dumb weapon, which might just be a landmine, which is a very simple artificial intelligence. It just blows up if something 50 pounds steps on it to something far more sophisticated that, you know, may sniff for gunpowder or recognize a uniform or, or who knows what do does the military application of narrow AI concern you? It does, very much does. And I think this goes back to, you know, at a broader scale. Uh, and, and look, uh, you know, I have, uh, I have been studying it for a bit. I have been reading up the whole notion of weaponizing AI is concerning. And, um, you know, again, they are, you know, at a country level, and I can't uh, at this moment sort of uh, disclose to you, but it's a, you know, a world-level organization that we have actually um, um, started working with, I would say sort of the beginning of our interactions with them around even using a country-specific view around how we can make and drive the ethics around AI. Look, we're a small company, but I can tell you this, right? It has to start at the grassroots level. This cannot be, um, you know, at the top level, you have some of the bigger organizations making decisions around the ethics of AI. It has to be a grassroots level uh, it has to also be, as you said, you know, in healthcare, there are, there are standards, there are, you know, um, bodies, there's regulation. You have to do it now. Um, it, and, and you have to do it in a way that it, that it doesn't um, impede the progress of AI and the good that can come from it, while ensuring that the control and the ethics around the bad 
are, are managed, right? So that's sort of the best answer I can give you at this point, but I can tell you there's a lot that we're doing at, at cognitive scale right now to really drive this whole notion of responsible AI. But let me give you two counterexamples to that, and just to get your thoughts on them. The first one would be, somebody would say, look, war is bad, nobody, nobody's for it, and we have to have weapons, so we make bombs, and our drone, and you drop that in, and it just kills everybody. If we could somehow make a weapon system that was smart and only tried to kill bad guys, why is that not better? Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, look, at the end of the day, war is war, and it's happening right now as we speak, regardless of AI or not, right? Um, look, the, danger, the dangerous aspect of this is not so much the fact that you can do it in a better way. It's what happens when it gets to rogue states where there's no control, right? I mean, that's sort of where I leave it. Because, you know, you have the same situation with nuclear weapons, right? The fact that I have those weapons and I can deploy them, you know, in a, in a good way, you know, you can use them for really good things, right? But on the other hand, you have rogue nations that can threaten others and do crazy things that, you know, you, you, you can't anticipate at this moment. But I would sort of use that analogy here to say there's always a good and the bad. But um, um, it's, again, it comes back to the, the, the responsibility, the controls, the governance around how AI is used. And it applies broadly across not, not just military, military, society, how people consume this. There's a whole layer of ethics and control and governance around AI that I think has to be thought through now. Uh, you know, autonomous vehicles also, if, you just, if I was to sort of extend this, right? You know, who's to say that, uh, you know, who makes the call when the vehicle decides that I have to save the passenger that's in the car and optimize by then killing the person on the road, right? So there's a whole bunch of, um, you know, thinking and and sort of uh, control around how AI systems are used, it's going to change the whole legal language around how AI is done. Um, things that people are just starting to get their heads around. But all of this is happening, Byron, because AI is now reaching the point where people are consuming it. Uh, they're starting to see the value from it, right? And so now they're getting to this different level of thinking around, you know, all the other stuff that comes with it, such as the, the usage and the and the legal aspects and the contractual aspects and so on. So for, you know, 2,000 years, we've had code makers and code breakers, and then the code makers make a better code, and the code breakers break it, and, and, and that's a, like this dance. Um, in the world of online security, do you think AI helps good actors or bad actors more? Does it help bad actors break into systems, or does it help good actors um, spot that behavior, or is it... Or is it just we just raise the whole struggle one more notch and it continues to be, you know, kind of locked? Yeah. No, that's another good example of you'll always have, you know, that's another great example, I think, of where you'll have, you know, the, the good side of, of using AI for good. And, and then on the, on the flip side, you'll have people misusing it for, for, for bad things, right? Um, look, I'm not, we're not specifically in the cybersecurity space. I know lots of companies that use AI in that space. Um, but, um, you know, we certainly deal with it when we, when we work and set up systems for our clients. Uh, I think the, uh, using AI to even today do the good around cybersecurity to figure out exactly where, you know, hacks or other sort of, um, I'd say imperfections in the existing sort of security is, uh, is happening is, is a good thing, right? And I think, uh, look, I, I'm a more <laughs> personally, Akshay Sabiki falls in the camp of being a little bit more optimistic, but with the right controls around it. And I always believe that, you know, good things can come out of it. But you've got to make sure that you're always keeping track of where people will, will misuse this technology. We've seen this, we've seen this over and over again with, uh, you know, other aspects of, uh, you know, uh, waves of computing that have come in where, 
you know, they, they seem really good. There's lots of good, good that comes out of it, but then you have, you know, the flip side where lots of damage can be done. And I think um, AI is no different, except the biggest difference here, my, in my opinion right now, is that the power of a technology like AI is immense the, the, on both the good side and the bad side. On the good side, its ability to transform industries, I think is going to be at a rate and pace that we haven't seen any other technology do. On the flip side, which is exactly what you're bringing up, Byron, this can be used in pretty uh, bad ways, right? Which is where I think uh, the whole governance side, the responsibility side, the ethics side has to be thought through now and, and soon. Well, let me ask you a couple of, of broadly philosophic questions. I assume you followed the AlphaGo match with Lisa Dole. Uh, I did a long time back. Right, right, right. Two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Not, not fully, not fully, I, mean, I mean, I heard. No, no, it, no. But, 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 but basically, there was there was a pivotal moment in this one game where AlphaGo made this move, and everybody watching was like, "What in the world is that thing thinking?" And then the the DeepMind people looked inside and said, "Only one in ten thousand humans would have made that move." Then Lee looked at it and he was like, just blown away. And in that moment, people started talking about the creativity of AlphaGo. Do you believe that machines can actually be creative or can they just simulate creativity? Or is there a difference between those two things? No, that's a good one. Um, I think machines can be and over time will become creative. Um, I think, um, again, it's about, look, we have um, about three or four years back, nobody would even believe the type of learnings and the ability for our system to, uh, you know, uninterrupted, not stop, not retrain, but look at feedback and get to a level of, you know, of learnability. That was, you know, unthinkable about five years back. But we've demonstrated this with, with some of the techniques that we've used. Um, I think we will get to a point where uh, there is so much information being fed to the machine where I feel like it will get to the point where it's coming up with new options that humans would look and say, I never thought of that. And that was a perfect example two years back. Look, I didn't follow the thing, you know, all the way to see the entire play, but I, I did read enough about it just to know that, you know, the creativity aspect is uh, is definitely, it's coming. I, I can't say when, but I think there's, you know, enough techniques right now that can get us to the point where in the next few years, we'll start seeing, you know, fairly interesting combinations of things where humans will say there was no historical evidence or any other information backing that up. But the machine came up with a suggestion that, over time will play out and we'll say that this was actually an extremely creative and, and, uh, you know, viable uh, solution that, that, you know, that, 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 but was, if, that uh, if that is true, then that is not explainable. Is it, you can't explain why the machine came up with that. So you kind of lose explainability at that point. You just say, well, the machine's just creative. They just figure that out. We don't know why, you know, human would have done that. So doesn't human, doesn't explainability run contrary to a creative machine. Actually, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think it actually runs with it because, look, at the end of the day, the fact that you're the, you're coming up with a creative solution that hasn't been thought through before, or there's no prior sort of uh, you know set of uh, uh, you know actions that uh, would have uh, directly led to this uh, recommendation by the machine, doesn't go against the explainability aspect because explainability to me is really saying. If I looked at seven different pieces of data, or if I looked at four different things in terms of actions, and I was able to combine them and come up with it, I'm giving you a full trace around how I came up with the action, right? So to me, explainability is almost an important inherent sort of capability within an AI system that is able to explain how the different, how it deduced and came up with a certain, um, you know, prescription. Um, and I think that 
is different than saying, I came up with the prescription that has never been done before, but trust me, this is likely to work, right? So I, I, I actually think explainability is an important ingredient of, of uh, even the example that you gave when it comes up with a, with a, with a recommendation of prescription. Explainability should just tell you how did I actually come up with that? What algorithms and what was the source and the evidence and the data that I used to construct and, and come up with a certain scoring or ranking or clustering algorithm that led me to a certain outcome, right? So I look at this as sort of it goes hand in hand with, uh, with, uh, you know, with AI systems. So we're, we're coming up on, on the close of the show here. I do want to ask one more question. This is unrelated to intelligence per se, but humans are obviously conscious, like we feel warmth, whereas a computer can only measure temperature. Nobody ever says a computer you know, can feel warmth. If you believe in creative computers, do you think we'll ever have the possibility of a conscious computer? And if not, or well, do you think computers can be conscious philosophically? Uh, good one. Um, you know, look, down the road, right, if you think about how these things will evolve, uh, you know, it's a great question. I, I frankly, will computers ever, what is consciousness, right? At the end of the day, you know, Well, it's, am it's I, the experience of something. You taste the pineapple and, and you actually it. experience it, whereas right. a computer never tastes anything. Yeah, you, you, you never taste anything, right? And so, look, just think, think about... Um, you could say a few years back, you could say computers don't see anything, right? Or they see, you know, what they see is essentially images and then they have to translate that image. But look where this stuff has already come, right? You're able to get into highly complex images today and down to the, you know, fairly sort of highly sort of, uh, you know, descriptive details of what's happening in that exact scene. You know, how can I recreate what's happening there? Computers are able to sort of assimilate and now sort of understand that, whether it is an image, whether it's a video, you know, can I bring, or whether it's sentiment, whether it is um, annotations in a voice, right? So you're able to bring all of that stuff today and at least understand it. Now, consciousness actually is, is something, uh, is several levels higher, right? Which is, A, is if, I, if I can understand it, that's step one, but can I do something with it? And can I react as things change? Do I have emotions that go with it and so on so i would say it's more than just con it's, it's actually can computers have emotions can they actually uh, you know react uh, or give you positive negative or sort of feedback in a way that humans do i think that's sort of the bigger question and you know that's to be seen i mean i think the the way things are advancing right now we've already come a long way i can absolutely see down the road that you could have you know a level of emotion and you know um original reactions from computers as they see uh, images. They're already seeing and, and deciphering images, but ima imagine the ability to react to that and say, I like this, or I don't like this, and I have my own mind now, which is different than the way you think as a human, right? What's Actually, coming? it's been a fantastic time chatting with you. Um, tell us how we can follow, keep up with what Cognitive Scale is doing, and, and, and you as well. Do you, you know, do you, do you tweet or blog or anything like that? Can you just close us up? Yeah, you bet. So look, uh, look us up, CognitiveScale.com. Um, we are based out of Austin, Texas, and uh, you know we are very active on Twitter. We are we are active on LinkedIn. You hear us, you hear the company talk about case studies. We are big into the practical applications of AI. So if you follow us, you'll get a chance to see what we're doing, you know, firsthand with the various industries we work in to drive real business outcomes. Because that's really where I believe the the difference is between what we do and a lot of other companies do. Thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome to come back anytime you like and, and keep doing the good work.
Thank you, Byron. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.